Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for joining me for the second part of my chat with Sir Richard Eyre. This is Stage Door Johnny. I'm Jonathan Cake. And without further ado, let's get back to that dark, chilly West London afternoon in January recently. Dark at sort of 3.45pm like it likes to do in London at that time of year. But Richard was warming me and lighting the place with memories of his extraordinary life in the theatre. Tell me about Dad's more, not necessarily yours, but 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 I was struck looking back at how much Lear. Obviously, you've done it twice. You'd, of course, you did it on I, film I did with film with Tony Hopkins. Tony Hopkins, exactly, yeah. and in the in-home production that we're talking about, and Hamlet too, of course, which is so much about fathers. Because when you did it famously with Jonathan Price, you had that magnificent invention yeah. of the father. I couldn't make sense of ghost i mean actually the older i've got the the more prepared i am to own up to the existence of the supernatural right and i have seen a ghost on on two occasions but i still don't know how theatrically you quite make a ghost work Uh, there's a brilliant film um called chaos by the taviani brothers yeah based on uh, Pirandello short stories, and it has a prologue and an epilogue. And the epilogue, Pirandello, goes back. His mother has died and is sitting in the living room and starts talking to his mother. And there's either a pan or a cut, and his mother is there. And it's absolutely beautiful and effortless. There's no trickeries, no effects it's just she's there and then she isn't there so I couldn't think of how to make this work and Jonathan's father had just died and we were talking about grief and and Jonathan saying well you know I just still feel very strongly that my father is is within me and 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 so I said well there's this phenomenon in certain societies of belly speaking and I said we could actually cut the first two scenes, you know, because also I had this idea of starting the play with the court, and it started with the court assembling. So Polonius came in, and in fact the whole cast sat for some time, including Hamlet, for about ten minutes. 
before the show started. And tremendous tension. Yeah. Because they kept looking at Hamlet, who didn't look at anyone. And then in come Gertrude and Claudius. Claudius played by Michael Elphick. Right. Who famously used to get through a crate of beer (laughs) during every performance. So that was the image I started with. And the the logic of that is that, I mean, I thought it made a wonderful story because you then, it's all a surprise. You get Horatio, I saw him, my lord. Right. Your father. And it's gripping stuff. Yeah. And being Jonathan. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of prodigious piece of virtuoso acting and very, very moving. Physically exhausting, but because the father was occupying him, it sort of made sense of that borderline, but, you know, is he mad mad or is he feigning madness or is he, you know, making a, taking advantage of the fact that he's on the borderline in order to play mad. And so you'd seen him sort of, slipping into what objectively was a sort of mad state. Right. Vomiting forth the yeah. words of his father yeah. without the ghost being pres- physically present. Yes. Fantastic. Um, so that was, that was very exciting. 1980, that was. And I had a meeting with Peter Hall, because Peter Hall's trying to get me to the National. And he gave me such a bollocking. <laughs> he said, you cannot do... I mean, you cannot cut those scenes. It's just not acceptable. <laughs> I mean, really, such a bollocking. How did you react? Oh, I was really intimidated. I Were said, you? well, the play's still there. Anybody else can... Of course, Peter had famously done a production, an absolutely torpid, narcotic production of <laughs> Hamlet with Albert Finney. Oh, yes. Which was full length and lasted about five hours. Right. And was a dog. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't stop him giving you a big job. It didn't. And the, the curious thing is that Peter had come to comedians in Nottingham. If you remember in the play that the second act, they do their routines right you know, this is routines. this we should explain this is it for anyone who doesn't know this was trevor griffith's play about a, a night school for stand-up comedians yeah in manchester that's right it was um, an absolutely incendiary it piece. was six working class comedians coming to uh, a night school and uh, the teacher was uh, an ex-comedian, yeah. and we cast an ex-comedian, Jimmy Jewell. That's right. Anyway, in the second act, you see the first act is about the, them rehearsing and the principles yeah. of comedy. The second act, you see them do their acts, and most of them sell out. And the last one is sort of Welsh skinhead, played by Jonathan Price, who does a terrifying, psychotic act and terrifies the audience, uh, smashes up a violin and ends up saying straight to the audience, still, I made the boogers laugh. And there's this terrified silence. And the night that Peter came to see it, Jonathan said, still, 
I made the book us laugh. So you didn't, you didn't, you didn't make us laugh. And Jonathan stared at this woman, stared and stared, nodded and left the stage. And then there's the, the club maitre d' says, well, thank, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and the, the lights come up. And, and Peter thought I'd rehearsed this. Oh, really? He said, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in a theatre. Years later, I discovered who it was. It was Will Keane's mum. What? It was Mary Keane. No. And yeah, Mary is a good friend now. And I was talking to Mary about Nottingham Playhouse and I described this event. She said, that was me. <laughs> My goodness. She said, I was so indignant about this abuse of the bourgeoisie, of yeah. the, the middle class. I thought, I'm not taking this. Wow. She was moved to shout back. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Well, that is the most... We're talking about this on the, the, the episode with Sam and one with Jez Butterworth too, about Declan Donnellan has this thing about accidents in the theatre. Oh, yeah, yeah. That there is... If you can somehow approach the sense of controlled emergency... We are never more activated as watchers. We are never more alert yeah. than when the, the brakes are slammed on on the opposite side of the street and we all look across to see yeah. what's happened. If you can get near that state yeah. in the theatre, you have our total undivided attention and everything, everything feels clearer and more incisive at those moments. And that must have been the absolute apogee yeah. of that moment. God, how extraordinary. Do you think Peter was threatened by you? These two bits of directorial impulse or tendency No, I, I, I don't think so at all. No, 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 no. Eventually, a couple of years later, I, I became an associate director. Right. And Peter said, I'd like you to do, you know, three shows. I can't actually remember the play that I suggested. And the second one was a new play by Barry Keefe. And I said to Peter, you know, I'd like to do these plays. And Peter sighed. He said, look, I'd really, really like you to think of doing something popular, a popular comedy, because, well, I'm afraid we desperately need a popular comedy. I said, I went away and thought, and then I came back and said, Peter, I have always wanted to do Guys and Dolls. And Peter, to his incredibly great credit, said, fine, okay, let's do it, but let's do it properly, which meant a budget at least three times, if not four times bigger than any budget had been in the Olivier Theatre. Wow. A musical, and the National Theatre had never done a, a musical. They'd never done a musical? No, and oh casting goodness. people who could sing and dance and act and somebody who'd I, I'd directed a few pantos and musicals at, at Nottingham but nothing on that scale and Peter said yeah and he was a wonderful producer he was absolutely wonderful mm. and it was supported me and then and there was an awful lot of I, I mean Niagara of criticism against the decision to do, uh, you know, what is the National Theatre yeah, doing? Right. Doing a great American 
musical cheapening the building and you know it shouldn't it's nothing to do with the national theater it's what the commercial theater does and you know who are they casting and who is this director who's anyway peter's notes after the first performance were absolutely brilliant about eight pages of detailed notes and peter said you can't do these all at once just Decide what you can do day by day. And we had two weeks of previews. And it it was just, it was an enchanted time because, I mean, we did have Julie McKenzie and Julie Covington and Bob Bob Hoskins Hoskins and and Stubby K. No, we had uh, David Healy. David Healy was like Stubby K. Why do I remember? Okay, Um, that was my father's. And um, Ian Charlson. And he's great, Ian Charlson. And David Taguri, the great David Taguri, who was Japanese-Canadian yes. choreographer, who had, I had worked with him before. He had worked with Fred Astaire. And it was a fabulous car, Jim Carter. Was, and Imelda Staunton was Julia's understudy. <laughs> um Bill Patterson, was it Jim Carter? Yes, yeah. I remember Bill Patterson. Richard, I to that... From that day to this, I've never had a more rapturous experience in the theatre than seeing that show. My mum and dad took me when I was... Oh, yeah. I mean, I must have been about 14, 15. And it was 82. just... It just blew yeah. the pants off them. It, the roof came off every single time. I went to see it several times, and I've wanted to be Ian Charlson ever since. Uh, there was something of, of such incredible magic about him in that. I mean... There are the great performances, aren't there, of your of one's life that you remember. That, that, that is for sure in my yeah. mind, top um, five. Peter, on the opening night, he said to me, you've bought yourself five years of critical immunity. <laughs> and he was right almost to the day. <laughs> it ran out. Oh, how wonderful. But, why, do you, why do you think you got it so spectacularly right? I mean, obviously, you're in very typical fashion. You're, you're, you know, you're giving some credit to eight pages of Peter Hall's notes but, and these extraordinary collaborators, obviously. But you got something incredibly right there. Um, What's that about? I don't know. I was working with um, John Gunter, the designer, and he was running the design school, Central School of Art at the time, and had set several times, set the students the task of how do you design a show for the Olivier Theatre? And nobody (laughs) solved it. And John and I were talking, and he said, I think the answer is you've got to close off the space in some way. You know, there's got to be a false proscenium. Right. And he had this brilliant idea of making the false proscenium porous. And we talked about using neon. And then I went, we went for a weekend in Paris, uh, went to the Pompidou Centre, and in the bookshop there, there was a book called Let There Be Neon. I bought it back, gave it to John, and that was the false proscenium. Oh, Um, yes. And he was sort of absolutely at the top of his game. Yeah. I don't know, I just... uh, Casting, I've always thought that, that half the thing of directing and half what, what's so attractive about it is making a model society mm. that you choose your family. Mm. I mean, unlike your real family. 
unfortunately chosen for you, <laughs> but you choose your family and you choose the society and you set you set aims for the society and you know resources for the society and you say this is what we're aiming to do and everybody and ensure that everybody is contributing so that the whole really is the sum of the parts and that seems to me very much part of directing that that's the half that is that some people think is just sort of housekeeping right. i think is is at the heart of making something that a piece that actually comes alive it's always going to come alive through the uh, the soft machines through through the actors right. you know it's the same with films you know if it's not if you can't feel the actors it's it's just not there it's is inert. it i mean yeah. you see and you see some terribly crude films with well i mean actually casablanca is incredibly crude mm. and yet you're so entranced by the human element yes and so i think the two really go together mm. and and do you need is there a, is there a particular is there a common denominator to your brilliant you know the, the ones that have really hit do you need to feel it in a particular way you did a brilliant wrote a brilliant thing about Ian Holmes saying the oxygen of the actor is to be completely appear to be completely spontaneous whilst being actually coldly removed at the same yeah. time so you walk along this magnificent tightrope of uh, of something that feels completely instinctive and something that is exactly its opposite what do you think the oxygen is for, a direct- for the director i think it's quite similar you know when we were doing ghosts which and i'd written the adaptation got this sensational cast which of course as with most plays were not where I started. You know, if you look at most of the successful things I've done, I mean, obviously, Ian Holm and Jonathan, but, but have not, they haven't necessarily had the actor you started off oh, with. Really? But you start off with X and you end up with Y and right. you have Y and you think, why did I ever think of anybody else? <laughs> um, but I can remember with, with Ghosts, Partly because I knew the the play so well because I'd adapted it, thinking actually a lot of the time I'm on automatic pilot. I'm just saying, you know, can you try this and try this and and the staging of it that relying on instinct, but of course it was sort of qualified by a kind of quite cold-hearted surgical objectivity. Right. But you didn't need to feel something very particular, a real leaning forward, something that means something personally to you. Yeah, I do. Have you ever been able... You do? Yeah. You can't direct something without feeling it in your gut somewhere? I can't. I have to feel it. Yeah. Sometimes I find that absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. And I remember when I was doing John Gabriel Borkman... With another extraordinary production that I saw, yeah. And because of the set, we were sort of in one of those national rehearsal rooms. I was sort of sitting there, and Schofield was about where your suitcase was. And the last scene, do you know the play? Yes, I saw that production. Um, And the last scene, 
where he dies. Yeah, out in the... There's a sort of titanic speech he yeah. has. Yeah. And it's so hard to pull off because what Ibsen is doing is taking on the whole of 19th century <laughs> capitalism. Yes. And I just, I started sobbing. And I said, I'm really, really sorry. I just, I can't, I can't say anything at the moment that's of any use at all. And, and Paul looked rather disdainfully. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this wuss? <laughs> um, so think, I've got to feel that at uh, some stage. Yeah. And it's like, it's the thing that, you know, that actors, you know, walking through fire. Yeah. There's a stage you, you know, you do something in a rehearsal and it's brilliant. It's inspired. And then you have to do it again. And you have to be able to summon that up. Was being overwhelmed by, by, by Schofield as Bortman, do you think anything to do with seeing him as a 19-year-old? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Playing but I'd always thought of him as a titanic man. Yeah. And of course, he was this sort of sweet, genteel, rather strange man. Really? And rather unreachable. He has this Mount Rushmore reputation yeah. in British classical theatre. Yes. And it's very, you don't often hear people talking about who he was. But he was unfucked over by Olivier. Really? Oh, God, yes. What did Olivier yeah, do? To I him? remember sitting in the canteen at the National with Paul telling me, Larry asked me to, and I knew he was trying to ruin me. Wow. I mean, there, he was a piece of work, Olivia. Oh, yes. Manoeuvre. And, I mean, getting Gilgood, what did he get Gilgood to do at the National Theatre? A play by Seneca, wasn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that well-known yeah. box office classic. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> God, how fascinating. How fascinating. So that being, that being overwhelmed, I'm so interested in, really, that sense that... Oh gosh, we, you, you wrote something brilliant once or said it to somebody about the theatrical family, I suppose, that you are, you've, you said you're living when you're doing these creations, when you're making these plays, you're living in this Ptolemaic universe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you feel completely at the center of <laughs> yes. the, the revolving world. You absolutely. are the molten core. Yeah. And then and when the it finishes. <laughs> The next day, you discover you're you're a minor satellite of a distant <laughs> star. You're in a Copernican yeah. universe. Yeah. And has that disjunction? It must be very good for perspective, but it must be very odd. Well, I mean, I know it's very odd, but particularly for you, who goes from this one titanic immersion to another, where the where the actors and the piece itself eventually waves you goodbye. Yeah. You just have to pack your bags and move on. Has that ever been dis, dis, dissonant for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, absolutely, because it's, um, it's bipolar, really. Yeah. And I've had problems with depression, and it's partly it's, it's an occupational hazard. Right. I mean, you do have those extraordinary highs, and then just terrible, terrible, terrible lows. And, yeah. and it, it's... Partly chemical, I'm sure. Yeah. There's a wonderful thing in Mike Lee's Gilbert Sullivan film. Yes, Topsy-Turvy. Topsy-Turvy. Uh, Jim Broadbent is, is Gilbert, isn't he? Yes. 
And after the, the greatest first night ever, I think was the first night of Iolanthe, and then there's a scene, he comes back to his house and uh, just sits on the bed. I'm so low. <sighs> and I know that. Yeah. Don't you you know that? Of course, of course. My my problem has always been the sort of <laughs> the difference between these extraordinary extremities that 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 great theatre, classical yeah, theatre yeah. particularly, is asking you to yes. go to. Even if you can't ever get there, the sense that you have to yeah, yeah, yeah. grow a bigger heart, bigger brain, bigger balls, or you'll be humiliated. Yeah. To going back to dealing with the quotidian business of your everyday life. Yes. I mean, so much so that I think I've said this on this podcast before, but I've become sort of a little bit addicted to extremity, I think, yeah. because of that. I mean, do you think there is a sort of, you're obviously, you keep coming back to it in a, like all of us, in a, in a, slightly pathological way. So there must be a sort of chemical alteration that happens that you need it again. Yes, but I'm, the last few years, it's been because of lockdown, pretty yeah. intermittent. And I'm not like Peter. Peter Hall was like that. He lived to direct right. and he directed to live. Right. And it was absolutely, he, he fed on it. Right. I remember when I left the National, I spent six months writing the book that is there, somewhere there. The, oh, there, Changing Stages. Up there, left, 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 there. Changing yes, stage. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So did out? I did. Oh, yeah. I had yes. to write the book and then do six episodes yeah. of the TV series called Changing Stages. That's right. And that, so I said to Peter... I'm not going to be rehearsing for nine months. And Peter said, I couldn't survive. He said, I just couldn't live. Wow. But you're so prolific. You don't feel that the, the constant, you know, sort of magnetic lure of it bringing you back in. No, I, I, I mean, I did. I wrote two plays during lockdown. You did? Why? Where did that impulse come from? Oh, no, you've always been writing, adapting. Uh, I'd, I'd had these ideas of them for years. But then I had just all this time. There's only so much time you can spend in the garden, isn't there? Right. <laughs> so they were suddenly ready to come well, out. They met the, well, they met the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. How was it? Well, I did the first one at Hampstead, and I thought it was quite successful until the reviews came out. Right. And they pissed all over it. Did they really? Absolutely. And it was weird because... The opening night, there was a very, very receptive audience, mm. but everyone was very enthusiastic. And I got home and I had an email from John Lahr. John great saying, uh, critic of The New Yorker. Exactly. And John said, you know, it's the best night in theatre I've had for ages <sighs> and the best play I've ever seen at Hampstead. And I thought, wow. It's in the it's bag. A, it's in the bag. I went to bed happy. Yeah. Woke up the morning and confidently opened The Guardian. And it was boring, pointless, old-fashioned. And it was fairly consistently rebuked. Huh. So that was very chastening. Very, very chastening. Um, Is your self-confidence, after all your extraordinary success, still... 
affected by that? Was oh, it God, was it yes. more affected by being the author? Oh, I was in more or less close to terminal depression. Oh, um, like sort of, I would look back on my life for the things I've done. It gave me no solace at all. I just thought, well, I've fucked it up, and I was never any good. It was very bad. I'm so curious, if you don't mind me saying this, about the confidence thing and, and, and wanting at, you know, a mature age to stick your neck out there and know, sit down crazy. and have this form of self-expression. Do you regret exposing yourself? No, I, I, I don't. I mean, I did at the time. I thought, yeah, yeah. why? Why didn't I just shut up? Why? I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to right. persuade people to put my play on. Right. Um, who's the author? Garrison Keeler. Garrison Keeler says there is only one acceptable review, and that is a review that begins... Arise, O sun god, we salute you as our leader. <laughs> well, that's why I never, I haven't read them in decades. Not because actually, for all the usual, you know, saws that people say, that they'll, a phrase will stick in my head. Yeah, yeah. It, it warps my sense of, you know, innocence about the thing. Actually, it's not, nothing to do with that. None of them, they could not be good enough to satisfy no, me. However good they are. I know, I know. But Peter Brook... <laughs> Who was, uh, who we were talking about earlier, full of practical wisdom. And after he'd done the Mahabharata for many years and toured it around the world and done it in, in French and in English, I said to him, what, what do you think you've learned from Peter? And he said, never to have reviews on an opening night. It freezes the performance. Yeah. I think I remember reading that. Yeah. And of course, if you're Brooke, you can probably <laughs> you can do that. But of course, as Simon Callow, I think, once said, you know, the history of British theatre is actually the history of opening nights. It's the history of press yeah. nights. It's the history of one night yeah. in, the, in the run of a play's yeah. life. Yeah. It, it's when it gets pronounced upon. Yeah. And it has no sense that the that, that, that theatre is a plastic thing or, you know, something that, that is pliable, that changes, yeah. that morphs over time. And most of them can't write. I mean, John Lahr is one who was able to yeah. write, yeah. you know, what a performance yeah. was like, and Ken Tynan yeah. Yeah. too. But most of them are just, We're not you know, they're like age. cricket scorers. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting that you and Sam both decided to write something. Both, neither of you needed to do no, it. No. And I, if I may say, as you're your devoted admirer, I've, I think there's something unbelievably fucking heroic about it. I really yeah. do. And with Sam, I felt the same way. There are stories that you need to get yeah. out. You are, you've spent your entire life, you know, in a form of communicating stories. And then there's something needing to be created that yeah. only you can create. Um, and how glorious it is that you did it. Well, I suppose I do feel that now at this yeah. distance. And you're doing that with these podcasts. There's no well, nobody's making you do these podcasts. And, and no, it's not ever you know, so you've had such an illustrious career as an actor. That why do you need to do it? Well, uh, I think I've said this a bit to you and Sue before. That that there's all sorts of reasons, really. But I tell you why I 
continue to do it as opposed to thinking, Christ, this is quite hard, feeding the ravening more of content every yeah. week. Why I continue to do it is because I absolutely love it. I absolutely love having yeah. conversations like this. And they started off feeling complicated in lots of different ways, feeling like the people I mean, I've interviewed up to now are far more illustrious than I am. There's a, there's a degree of sort of, you know, one is always so far too aware of one's status in this business. It's a feudal system after all. But rapidly, that disappeared completely. Yeah. And it, and it became something which actually felt like this wonderful form of self-expression, but also like a form of absolute devotion to this, yeah. to this art form that I love, you know. Because as I said, Richard, looking back over your career, I, I was suddenly like, good God, I've seen all these plays. I saw all these plays, and not only did I see them, they were incredibly indelible for me. And look at all the things that you did that I didn't see. Look at all the extraordinary things that you continue to do. There's something I find immensely inspiring about it. Yeah, I just say it's a joy to talk about it. Oh, I'm because so glad. the only time one ever does talk about in this sort of yeah. detail is to somebody who's writing an interview yeah. when the whole time right. you know right. that they're sort of <laughs> seeking the quote yeah, yeah, and yeah, they've sure. already got yeah, yeah, yeah. some kind of yeah. construction yeah. of a notion yeah. of what you are and what the newspaper needs. And so just to be able to, yeah, to yeah. talk without a fixed agenda is, is absolutely wonderful. It's very rare. I love that people aren't selling anything. Yeah. Well, pushing anything, which is it already feels rather radical in our world of, you know, mm. instant commerce and shilling your wares in the marketplace. I love that we have a relationship. All the people I've talked to I have a relationship with, and there's something wonderfully informal about that. And then I also love that it's about this particular subject because I've talked to people who are very famous and often this particular this particular medium, this particular way of telling stories reminds them of when they weren't. Yeah. Of when they had nothing. When they yeah. were when there was a sort of purity yeah. about what they were trying to do. Because I don't know if you feel this, theatre is such a democratizing thing. I mean you can be Paul Schofield or Ian yeah. Home or, you know, these great stars. Well I love I love the fact that you have to turn up on time. <laughs> you know, and the That's curtain right. goes up at seven thirty and you can't fuck about. That's right. That's right. And if you, you're, you're going to be as humiliated as the bloke who's got two lines and gets yeah. those wrong if yeah. you don't fucking bring it. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I won't keep you much longer, Richard. I really won't. But I, although I could talk to you for months and months, and maybe I should come back and do a part two because we barely touched the surface. But look, Brooke, coming back to Brooke again and again, he said um, he was asked something. You wrote about him. He said something like, someone asked Peter Brooke, what, why will someone pay... Uh, money, a lot of money for a pair of shoes that they yeah. won't pay for a theatre ticket. Yeah. And Peter Brooks said, because shoes have never, never for centuries, shoes have never let people, people down. Yeah. <laughs> but the theatre has let yeah. us down. Yeah. What, has the theatre ever let you down? I've let the theatre down on occasions. I've just fucked up. And you just want to go away and bury your head in there. 
in the earth. Mm. Yes, I've, I've fucked up. No, it's never like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful medium that this, I, I don't like filmed theatre. No. I don't like these broadcast play. I just, they're such hybrid, yeah. you know, and you see, you think, well, this is so badly filmed. You know, the sound is so dodgy. Why do they look so overmade up? And these camera angles, every single camera angle is wrong. And, uh, and, it, and somehow the life is taken out of it. I love the present tenseness of theatre. I love the way that it, it's, it's transformative and that it's all metaphorical. You know, you put a single chair and a table on a set and you can suggest a whole house. You put 20 chairs and you've got a whole society. And it's that quality of everything being metaphorical. Yeah. And, I mean, this is what I think Brecht, who I much admire, was the, the sort of alienation, is so stupid because... Everybody, even a child that goes into it, knows that they're making a poetic, their imagination is being conscripted. Incidentally, one of the formative experiences of my life was going with John Neville to see three productions of the Berliner Ensemble in, would have been 66. Gosh. They were at the Old Vic. And I saw Arturo Ui, Coriolanus, and the Days of the Commune. Was it the famous Coriolanus? Was it Brecht's Coriolanus? Brecht's Coriolanus. Right. Wow. And the original productions. And Eckhart Schau, who played, um, who was Ui. <gasps> Just one, but the productions oh. were magnificent. Wow. Absolutely magnificent. And, uh. Helena Weigel was she? Helena Weigel played Volumnia. <sighs> And I can still remember a gesture that she had. And there's that scene. She puts his armor on. Yeah. And then he went on and, and he strutted off. And she raised her hand and it was like a salute. And for a moment, it was like a Nazi salute. And then somehow she bent the ends of her fingers and the salute turned into uh, a gesture of mourning. She knew she would never see her son again. And it was so exquisite. And it's not producible in any other medium. It's, it has to be in real time, yeah, yeah. in front of your eyes, and you've got to occupy the same space. And that is, to me, the, the absolute essence of the theatreness of, of theatre. Yeah. What do you still want from it? I wouldn't say I want anything specific, but I'm I'm planning to show this year. I'm going to do a play with Eileen Atkins yeah. at Chichester. Oh, great! Why? Because I think she's a great a great actor, and she's playing a 91 year old woman in this play, which is an American play that's actually probably seen called Four Thousand Miles. Oh, I've heard Amy of it. Herzog Yes, play. the Amy Herzog play. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And why, why am I doing it? Because I was asked, and I want to work with Eileen. Yeah. 
And I've been auditioning recently, and I've, it, it's so, so much fun. And I think I cast these people think, I'm so looking forward to being in a room with these people and, you know, knitting together this thing that is then put in front of an audience. So, I mean, there are a few things I'd like to do. I've written a version of uh, Strindberg. Um, Dance of Death. Dance of Death, which I wrote because... Leslie Manville and Rafe Fiennes yeah. asked me to do it, and I did it. And then Rafe said, oh, I can't, you know, I'm doing something else. And then Leslie was doing film, and, but that's there, and I really wanted to do it. Mm. I have a version of The Tempest that I want to do that I was going to do with Jeremy Irons, and then Jeremy backed out of it. No surprise. <laughs> right, there, but, right. Um, a version, meaning it, it, it's. Well, one of the things about it is that he's like a conductor. Ariel is always in the air and just flies above Prospero. And I originally want Ariel to fly in from the back of the auditorium and then fly over. And when Ariel is given his freedom, it's the first time his feet touch the ground. And um, Ariel should be played by that beautiful American gymnast. Simone Biles. Simone Biles. Um, And I imagine a gymnast and touches the floor and then doesn't know what to to do because Ariel can't fly anymore. And and also trying to make sense of of Caliban. My 10-year-old granddaughter did for a school project. They had to do a bit of Shakespeare. So her sister made her up and put leaves in her as, as Caliban. And she did this speech, Isla's Full of Noises. And it was incredibly moving, this 10-year-old child, because nobody had told her Caliban is a, you know, a yeah. rough brute. brute. It was just beautiful yeah. and, and innocent. And I thought if you can get something of that. But we did a reading with Jeremy as Prosper, who was brilliant. And the scene, everybody in the room was moved to tears by the end, the farewell to, to Ariel and the leaving the island. And I thought, actually, it's beautiful. I would love to, to do that. But it's very, very simple except it requires flying. Right. And the moment you mention flying, it's, it gets quite expensive. Of course it does. Oh, well, that's plenty, plenty to look forward to, I would say. I love that you've still got plans for the theatre and the theatre still has plans for you. Richard, going back, reading all this stuff, I really think your work has given me more pleasure than anybody else's in the theatre that I could oh, think of over the course of a lifetime. So, so It's really true. That's You know, it's really, really properly your... true from a young boy oh. to ongoing. And so I can't thank you enough for sitting down no, and taking uh, well, the time. Well, I'm absolutely overwhelmed and in some way ashamed that not so long ago I was sitting on my own thinking... What have you ever done that's worth anything? So thank you. It means well, a huge amount to me that you say that. Well, it's all true. From this you. side of the microphone, thank you. you've done, you've done you. more than you needed to. Thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Richard. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I meant it. Richard's work has given me such enormous joy over the years. Yeah, really the landscape of my theatre going. It was always such an event to go to the National Theatre when I was younger. It just felt so exciting. Crossing Waterloo Bridge and seeing those neon signs outside that mad, brutalist architecture of that building and seeing what was on tonight. And it just felt like it was the absolute sort of centre of the theatre world. And then when I got to work there and walked in through the stage door, years later, it just felt like the greatest thing. And Richard's tenure as, as artistic director was really when I was sort of going all the time to that building on the South Bank in London, and it really felt special. Production after production felt magical. I can't thank Richard enough for taking the time. He's busy. He's always busy, as you heard. And it was lovely of him to take a minute to chat to me. And as I said to the, in the outro to the first episode, so many more things I could have I could have asked him about. I mean, I really, there's so many great theatre practitioners that I really want to go back and ask all the things I never got to ask. And Richard's certainly one of them. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thank you. Ben Backhouse, my producer. Amazing. Thank you to Louise Berry for your exec uh, producing. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the stage manager. We had a YTS intern trainee stage manager this week. Thank you to Phoebe Cake for doing that. Thank you for also singing the theme tune. Thank you, Iggy Cake, for writing and playing the theme tune. And my guest next week is so exciting. I'm just simply going to say his name. He doesn't need any other introduction. It's Willem Dafoe. I know. Willem Dafoe. Ridiculously exciting. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a lie, rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage. Stage door Johnny Stage, stage, stage door Johnny